Good morning. How is everyone today? Let me get settled. So Jeremy asked me last week to speak today, and about two weeks before that, um, I felt really strongly God say to me, um, if they ask you to preach, preach that sermon you preached six years ago. And I was like, well, they're not going to ask me to preach, so cool. Um, And then you did. So this is that sermon, and really what I'm going to share to you today is just the testimony of our family. It's what I have learned from saying to God, God, use this in whatever way you want to, to build your kingdom. Because when we started out to start a family, that's what we said to God. Whatever it looks like, Lord, just use it to build your kingdom. So this is my family. If we could put the first picture up. Those are pictures. Aren't they cute? Um, my husband and I are not in that picture because do you know how difficult it is to get five kids, six and under, in a picture with the only two adults who can really help them all look at one camera at the same time. So there's not a lot of pictures of us together. Um, And the one on the left is all six of our kids. Um, So that's Kenya, Kaya, Samantha in the middle holding the baby Kingsley. That's Keandre and then Corey. And so that's the most recent picture, which we needed because they all look so much bigger there than there. Um, So Samantha is our oldest daughter that a lot of people around here actually don't know probably. And this is kind of the story of how this all started. So I'll talk about them more later. But first I want to talk about the God of the troubled waters. Um, And I did not tell them that before they chose we come alive in the river. And isn't that just like God to do? This message for me was influenced by the song Wade in the Water. It's one of my favorite songs. It's an old spiritual associated with the Underground Railroad. It's the best song. And there's a a significant beauty about songs that speak of spiritual help, but also gave tangible guidance to enslaved people taking their freedom back. And that is what that song does. Wade in the water is get in the river so that the dogs can't get you. Take your freedom back. And I love that song. And the images of the God of the troubled waters in scripture are abundant. There are many places where we can see miracles that involve water, but we're only going to focus on a few today. So I'm going to tell you three stories of God in troubled waters. The first is in John 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind they used for the by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the first miracle recorded in the book of John, and John calls it the first of his signs. 
And signs are just spiritual symbols, right? And why do we need symbols? We need symbols because sometimes, does anybody find that it's a little hard sometimes to have faith? To believe that even God is real. I maybe shouldn't make you raise your hands on that in chapel, but sometimes I find it hard to have faith. To believe that it's all real. And how hard would it have been for the disciples to believe the same thing? They'd not had 2,000 plus years of history with a Bible that included both an Old and a New Testament. They'd just met in person a man who said, I'm the Messiah. And John, who was the one closest to Jesus, recorded that as proof. He said, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the name, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These are symbols to us that he's real and that his word is true. And so what's interesting to me is how all of these stories work together. I'm not just talking about the miracles recorded in John. I'm talking about the entire Bible, both Old and New Testament. All of these stories are working as testimonies to tell us of the one who came to save us and show us the way and that he is always at work in our lives. So let's jump back a bit in the story. Let's look at Exodus 14, 13 through 22. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see that the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today, for the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen." And then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind and all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and their left. And again, we see a miracle, the sign that points to salvation, that God is always working to rescue us. The Jesus Storybook Bible is one of my favorite Bibles. It's a kid's Bible. It's beautifully illustrated, but it makes points in very poignant ways. And it says in this story, many years later, once again, God was going to make a way where there was no way. From the beginning, God's children had been running from him and hiding, and God knew his children could never be happy without him. But they couldn't get back to him by themselves. They were lost. They didn't know the way back. But God knew the way. And one day he would show them. Miracles point us to God to his rescue in the moment, but ultimately to his salvation in eternity. In both the wedding at Cana and the parting of the Red Seas, there seems to be a pattern in the miracles. First, there's a really big need. The 
<clears throat> there's a need to, to save face, right, and to not have shame at the wedding. And there's a need for rescue. Second, the petitioner is questioned. In the John passage, God says, or Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? In the Exodus passage, it says, why do you cry to me? Then a measure of action is needed on behalf of the people from the petitioner. In John, it's the filling of the jars. In Exodus, it's the raising of the staff. In both, Jesus' miracle of troubled water is at the forefront, bringing glory to God. We have water into wine. We have a parting of the sea. And so in these stories, the miraculous acts of God are acts of rescue. In the case of the marriage at Cana, Jesus saves the family's honor. And in the case of the Jews, God saves them from the Egyptians. Really, the biggest difference is that at the wedding, not everyone can see the miracle. Only a few people know about it. And at the Red Sea, everyone sees it. These are powerful accounts of how God troubles the waters to come to our rescue. The song Wade in the Water captures the essence of these types of moments in scripture. One author I read described it this way. This was a God who not only saved and protected, who made the wish for the immortal eternal, but one who returned faith and courage, provided strength for the journey, and made his own kind of trouble. Don't you love that? We have a God who makes his own kind of trouble. These are often the kinds of miracles we look for. The type of miracle where God makes clear the path, where the waters are troubled on our behalf. But what about when we arrive and the water is troubled in a way that doesn't seem to benefit us, but rather terrifies us? Where's the miracle then? The next story we're going to look at is Matthew 14, 22 through 33. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter asked, tell me to come on the water. Come, he said. And then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were on the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. What stands out to me in this are the differences from the other miracles. In this story... Jesus leads the disciples to a place that will be troubled, and then he leaves them. Imagine that. How it would feel to be out on the storm and think, Jesus isn't here. And then Jesus arrives and walks on the water. This in and of itself is a miracle. 
And it happens from the outset, really, because it's not where our focus is supposed to land. The miracles of the other two accounts, now I'm an English teacher, so go with me here, okay? They're the rise, they're the climax of the story. The miracle in this account is just the rising action. It's as if Matthew wants us to see how natural this actually is. Jesus has supreme power and authority over the water. The miracle is a given fact. Jesus had conquered the troubled water from the beginning. The Jesus Storybook Bible says the wind and the waves recognized Jesus' voice. They had heard it, of course, before. It was the same voice that made them in the very beginning. But instead of the disciples seeing this and allowing it to comfort them and give them faith, they're terrified. They say, it's a ghost. But that's not because they were having a crisis of faith. That's because it was their cultural response to the situation. At that time, most people believed that the sea was a dwelling place for evil and that those um, who drowned haunted the waters. So even though this was their cultural response... They also had just experienced that Jesus could and would rescue them. Just four chapters before, we see Jesus is asleep on the boat during the storm, and they wake him up, and he calms the waters. They know he can do it. They're familiar with his power over the sea, but they're not even looking or asking for miracles at this point. And so instead of questioning them, Jesus says, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. One commentator I read said that this is probably better translated as, take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. She wrote, this self-revelation is a disclosure of Jesus' source of power. For Matthew's Jewish Christian audience, Jesus' words echo the divine name. I am that I am. Again, proving his own power over all the earth. Jesus is saying, the miracle is already here. I am the miracle. It's the next part, though, that stirs me the most. Peter says, if it's really you, tell me to come onto the water. And Jesus says, come. Oftentimes, I believe that this is what Jesus is also saying to us as we approach troubled waters. Come, Step out into the storm. And while he's walking on the water, Peter loses focus. He gets caught up in his natural understanding of the world, knowing that troubled water is a recipe for death. And he loses sight of his supernatural understanding that Jesus is above all things. The miracle is already here. His fear catches up with him. Even in his doubt, his faithlessness, Jesus is there to reach out and uphold him. And then comes the question, why did you doubt? Jesus asks this because his natural understanding, Jesus' natural understanding, is so much different than ours. All of nature, the whole world that he created, knows his voice because he created it. So for Jesus, it's only natural that storms don't scare him. What I love about this is that this is a participatory miracle. Peter gets to take part in the miracle, not just benefit from it. Jesus has the authority to share his miraculous ability with us, even if our natural understanding sometimes conflicts 
with our desire to emulate Jesus. Here, Peter's lack of faith is practical. Peter's instinct to save his own life overrides what he knows of Jesus, and I think that happens to us sometimes. In the end, though, the miracle has the same effect. It points us to the power and the glory of the God who can save us. So now I'm going to share a very personal story. Um, About six years ago, a little more now, God told my husband and I, prepare to have a family. Um, And neither of us were expecting that word from God. So we started preparing. Okay, God, you want us to have a family. That's what we'll work toward. I was expecting a water into wine moment. One of those times when you follow God's instructions and the result is immediate. So much so that most people don't even realize a miracle has occurred. But that didn't happen. And after a year of trying to start a family, we were a little discouraged. God, why did you tell us to do this if you weren't going to do this? And so we started sharing with our family and friends, this is going on, we don't know what to do, we'd like a Red Sea moment. God, do something. Make a path. And then six years ago, tomorrow, the storm started. And on Valentine's Day of 2014, I was sitting in my office in Kingsrider, and my husband called. His 44-year-old uncle had died suddenly of a massive heart attack, leaving behind a 17-year-old daughter, Samantha. I had known Sam since she was five, but I hadn't seen her in about eight years, so I didn't really know her. Her dad was a single father raising her. We weren't really sure what was going to happen to her. And my husband was mourning the loss of his beloved uncle. He told me two days after Dan died, I think we're supposed to take Sam. And I said, no, that's not God talking. That's your grief. I was afraid. All I had previously known told me I wasn't the person for this. This would drastically change our lives, and we were trying to have a baby. It wasn't the time. My natural mind couldn't let me see what was happening spiritually. But six weeks later, a series of events led to Sam coming to our house to stay for 10 days. And in that time, God showed us his power, that he is the I am. And after she left, we asked God, do you want us to step out into the troubled waters? And he said, come. So in April, just after Easter, Sam moved in. And God slowly revealed himself in this process. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. We had a 17-year-old daughter who didn't share the same value system as ours. She didn't have the same understanding of family that we did or parenting. And she was grieving deeply because the entire world that she knew was gone. And day by day, she became our daughter, the one that we had prayed for. One day, my husband was checking one of our accounts, and has anybody ever forgotten a password and can't figure it out, right? And he was looking it up, and he realized 
Um, he had used a name that we had liked and the year that we thought we would start a family. So a name that we thought we might name a child and the year that we would start a family and we'd always liked the name for a boy, Samuel. And so he had used Sammy 2014, probably about a year before, as this password. He looked at me and he said, you realize, right, that God gave us the child we asked for. Looking back, I see it. I see that we looked at about 100 houses, I'm not exaggerating, in the neighborhoods we wanted to live in, only to end up in a neighborhood I did not want to be in, but it was right next to Samantha's school district. If we'd never had a Sam, I don't think we ever would have pursued foster care adoption. I don't think that there would be a Keandre and a Kenya and a Kaya and a Corey and a Kingsley in our family today. God continues to use this story in our lives to show us his glory, to increase our faith. At the beginning of the adoption journey, we were matched with Keandre, Kenya, and Kaya, but we were told, Corey's in a different placement. It's unlikely he will come to you. That family really wants to adopt him, even though you'd like to keep him with his siblings. When Kingsley was born, we reached out to our social worker and she said, We'd be considered as a potential option, but they couldn't be sure of it. But friends, God's care for us is so good. He knows who you are. He knows what you need. And when you submit your life to him for kingdom work, he will exceed your expectations. And in it, it won't feel like work it will feel like the greatest blessing you've ever received. Faith was something I always thought I had in abundance. I grew up in church. I'm a PK. We've been through hard things. I thought, I know how to recognize the face of God. But I think when God calls us out into troubled waters to participate in the miracle with him, he wants to pull us into a deeper faith relationship with him to challenge our natural understanding. He wants us to learn to recognize his face in the storm because his face is all that matters. He is the I am. And somehow, his understanding of the world becomes ours. This Christmas, we did an Advent devotional um, with our kids, with our five and six-year-old, and when I say we did an Advent devotional, I mean we made it through exactly two days of an Advent devotional. And then my kids, after Christmas, said, weren't we supposed to do that every night? And I said, we'll, we'll do it next year. Um, so so uh, we're not great at that kind of thing. But one of the first nights, we read about what it meant to be adopted into the family of God. And so this devotional has these questions, and they're kind of labeled by age, and it said, the age-appropriate question for kids 10 to 12 is, what does it mean to be adopted into the family of God? But I knew my kids would know. And I asked my five- and six-year-old, what does it mean that you're adopted into God's family? And they said it means we're his family forever. God uses the miracle to help us have a greater understanding of his nature, of what it means to be his, 
of what it means to do kingdom work right in your very home. Not because we're missionaries in our home, it kind of makes it sound too vocational, but because all of your life is an act of service to building the kingdom. So I think even still we turn to the questions, why? Why did this happen to me? Why did you allow this, God? These are natural questions to ask. One of my favorite authors, Annie Dillard, said, what type of perfect monsters would we be if we did not ask these questions? In his book, Till We Have Faces, C.S. Lewis shares the story of Arul, a queen who is angry at God because she believes he has not been there for her. The queen has written a book of complaint against God because she sees him as silent. She has all the why questions we typically have. But in the end, Queen Orul realizes her mistake. She says, I ended my book with the words, no answer. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You yourself are the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? The musicians can come forward. I believe there are probably many of us here today who are looking for an answer from God. We want to know why the suffering is occurring, why the storm is happening. What I can tell you is I don't know. I don't know why six years ago a 44-year-old man who seemed healthy died leaving his daughter to my care. I don't know why the biological relationships couldn't have been restored for my five small children. And I grieve all of this for and with my kids every day. I do know, though, God is the answer to our grief. He's the answer to our lack. He's the answer to our fear. He's the answer to our inability that he's teaching me just as he wants to teach us all today and every day, keep our eyes on his face. And he's there to uphold us in our faithlessness. He's here to tell us, you will not drown. You will walk on the water. You will walk on the water. You will walk on the water. The images of water are so striking in the word of God. And I love this song because at the end of the day, he is the water. He's the river of life that we all need. And what he's asking you today is, are you willing to step into it? Are you willing to step into the river of joy But just as easily, are you willing to step onto the stormy sea? Because he's in both. I don't know what your family life has taught you. But there are a lot of examples that teach us. We are now adopted into the family of God. And we can trust that he is good, even in the storm. So I want to just pray for us and then turn it over to them. And we're just going to praise God. 
for the living water that he brings us. Heavenly Father, I pray, God, no matter the situation that these students are in today, no matter the families they come from, no matter the situations they're facing, God, that you would reveal your face to them. And that, God, we would be able to lift up our eyes to you, to see through your eyes, through your natural understanding of the world, which far surpasses our abilities to understand. God, give us your sense of the world. Give us your sense of who you've created us to be and how you want to use every part of our lives to build your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen.